Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Rosemary Giles and I'm in the hot seat today. The World Health Organization estimates that 107,000 people die every year as a result of occupational exposure to asbestos. Despite the first health fears associated with asbestos being raised at the end of the 19th century, it still impacts far too many lives. But just how far have we come and what more needs to be done? During Global Asbestos Awareness Week, we're going to reflect upon how much asbestos is still being used around the world and the importance of banning mining and manufacturing of the deadly fibres. We'll also talk prevention, the importance of enforcing current laws and regulations and the landmark legal cases that has brought about positive change. To do all of this and more, I am delighted to be joined by three special guests. Firstly, I'd like to welcome Kate Hill. Kate is a Senior Research Fellow and National Institute for Health Research Advisor at Leeds Institute of Health Sciences and a trustee of the June Hancock Mesothelioma Research Fund. Kate, could you start by telling us a bit more about your role and the pioneering research work you do? Well, thank you for the introduction, Rosemary. I'm Kate Hill. I, I'm an applied health researcher, but the uh, role that I today that's relevant today is that I'm a trustee of the June Hancock Mesothelioma Research Fund. Uh, and the June Hancock Fund was one of the first charities in the UK dedicated to funding research in mesothelioma. And I think although we're a relatively small charity and we have no paid staff, we've been quite an important player, particularly in the research field. We have raised over two million pounds since we were founded in 1997, and we've dispersed 1.3 million of that directly into research. And we've built over the years a respectable research portfolio with studies ranging from basic science up to palliative care. Joining Kate is Greg Byrne, a director of RB Asbestos Consultants. Greg, can you tell us about the brilliant work you and your company does to help prevent people from being exposed to asbestos? Yeah, thanks, Rosemary. Uh, my name is Greg Byrne. Uh, I'm, uh, I kind of have two hats, really. One is I'm managing director of a company called RB Asbestos Consultants, and uh, we're effectively a consultancy involved in surveying buildings for asbestos, helping people manage it, training people, awareness, uh, and those types of uh, events. Um, I also uh, am a director of the IATP, which is the uh, Independent Asbestos Training Providers Group, who uh, are focused pretty much on various types of, of asbestos training. Um, I've been in the industry for 30 years, and as I sort of get on in years, my what I, what I would like to call the, the area I prefer to work in or, or enjoy to work uh, working in is specifically around um, awareness of, of younger people. So uh, schools, colleges, uh, universities, apprentices. So I give up as much time as I can talking at those types of events for free. And I also do the same at various mesothelioma groups. Finally, I'd also like to introduce Adrian Budgeon the lead of our asbestos-related disease team at Irwin Mitchell. Adrian, can you briefly tell us about how we support clients and their families after a mesothelioma diagnosis? Thank you, Rosemary. We um, specialised in the field of uh, asbestos uh, disease and uh, 
in particular representing and supporting uh, people with mesothelioma and their families for nearly 40 years. A diagnosis of mesothelioma is a catastrophic diagnosis. So many people, um, it's just it's earth shattering and uh, just completely unexpected mesothelioma strikes uh, out of the blue. Um, the period between exposure to asbestos and developing uh, the disease um, is often many years, several decades in, in a lot of cases. So it really does come out of the blue like a bolt of lightning. We give every client as much support as we possibly can following a diagnosis um, and look to uh, pursue a, a, a civil claim wherever possible and also give advice on government compensation, which is uh, also very important. Thank you for that, Adrian. Let's start with a look back into the past and just how much of an impact asbestos has had in the past century. Asbestosis was um, first described in medical writing in the 1920s, um, which is certainly shocking, and most people aren't, aren't aware of that at all. I think if you look back at the history of asbestos exposure, um, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it globally, uh, historically, but I think, obviously, we're here in the UK. I think if you look at it, particularly in the UK, we have some of the worst events over, over a, a period of history, mainly because probably the world centre for making asbestos products at one time would have been the UK, and particularly the northwest of England, where, where I live. So if you had sort of deemed the M62 corridor, uh, obviously it wasn't built then, but if you look at the number of factories, companies producing asbestos products, if you go somewhere like uh, Rochdale, the largest textile asbestos producing factory in the world, 7,000 people working there. You go to Army in Leeds, 3,500 people work there. You move over to Truffer Park in Manchester, 2,500 people work there. So it's almost like a, a super highway of companies producing asbestos products. And we have the highest rate of mesothelioma in the world, in the UK per head of population. And that's really why I would call double exposure. So you've got the exposure of people who worked in the factories making the products. And then you've got obviously people who were affected by products that were installed in buildings, taken out of buildings. So it, it was such a huge business, such a large amount of profit involved that sort of, you know, getting that profit out of the hands of, of people who want to make money and stopping asbestos, even when we knew it was dangerous, was really, really difficult. So as you rightly pointed out, Rosemary, we look at early cases of asbestos-related disease, um, lung scarring, asbestosis from almost as far back as uh, 1908. And then it's not until 1999 we banned the material in the UK. So that, that's approaching 100 years of exposure. Uh, and I guess that kind of sums it up, really. That geographical focus that you mentioned there, Greg, that is actually reflected, I suppose, in the fact that Dr Cook who wrote that first paper in 1924 was based at Wig in Wigan uh, and he re he reported the case of Nellie Kershaw who was a mill worker in Rochdale so again it kind of reinforces that geographical boundary that you know that you see and the, and the way you see these concentration of cases in areas where there's a lot of asbestos either produced or used in production I think you're absolutely right, Kate. And if you, if you look at the incidence of mesothelioma, it certainly gravitates towards large conurbations, shipbuilding places, um, Glasgow, um, Barrow, 
um, uh, rail, rail production, Swindon, um, the dockyards, Plymouth, Portsmouth. You certainly get spikes of mesothelium around those types of uh, areas. And of course, you mentioned Armley there, Greg. And that, of course, is um, very important so far as the June Hancock Mesothelioma Research Fund is concerned. Yes, indeed. That was where June grew up. And in, in fact, in a way, it's interesting, isn't it, that the reports in the medical literature that led to the inspectorate, the factory inspectorate, actually investigating asbestos dust. Uh, and then the response to that being that they wanted to clean up the areas, the factories where people work, actually led to them extracting it out into the streets. And that's how June was exposed. You know, if you can imagine in the 1930s, those rows of back to back houses with the chimney, you know, the factories spewing out smoke. And unfortunately, in Armley, they were also spewing out asbestos dust. And the children, of course, just played in it. Kate, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the the houses around Armley because early on in my career, I, I was indirectly involved with some of the work that went on. And what they actually did, did was they did some testing in the residential property around the factory at Armley. Now, these are kind of, as you rightly point out, uh, two, three-storey terraces, often back-to-back. -back, and they tested inside the loft spaces, the wall cavities, and found asbestos. So what they actually did eventually was they took the roofs off, they took all the floors out, decontaminated all the walls right down to the basement and then internally rebuilt the houses so they could resell them for people to live in. So as you rightly point out, that dust migrated from the factory via potentially local exhaust ventilation or just poor management and got into the houses. So people worked in the factory and breathed asbestos in and then they went home and did exactly the same. We were in the Court of Appeal on June Hancock's case. Um, it was the defendant's appeal. So uh, June Hancock was present uh, throughout. Um, and uh, that was uh, the defendant's appeal against uh, a decision by Mr. Justice Holland following a six week long trial in Leeds in the summer of 1995. So he found uh, against the company Turner and Newell, the, the factory was uh, part of the Turner and Newell group. Um, but as Kate said, um, in order to comply with the 1931 asbestos regulations, Turner and Newell, Roberts effectively, just exhausted the asbestos from the factory through the roof fence uh, and uh, the dust spewed into the surrounding area. And one of my colleagues, uh, Rachel Penn, uh, uh, unearthed an aerial photograph from a commercial photographer in Bradford. It was extraordinary she was able to, to find these photographs but that that uh, had a, a profound influence on the trial judge because from from above uh, you could see the local school the army clock school which was uh, virtually next to the factory uh, but the playground where the children used to sleep uh, on, on little camp beds during breaks during the fine weather that that, that had a sort of almost like layer of snow on it sort of dust so the judge was very impressed by that but Kate as you say uh, Jude as a child and other children played on the loading bays of the factory jumping on the bales of asbestos playing hopscotch and, and spinning tops and uh, you know just being normal children playing innocent childhood games but uh, they weren't shooed away by the the uh, factory foreman at all it's just uh, so of course the tragic legacy of that is that June 
and many other people uh, very sadly developed mesothelioma many years later. And of course that landmark decision um, has been so important for um, legal claims that, that have come along since then. Uh, absolutely, in terms of the indirect exposure if you like, this was the uh, first, uh, June Hancock's case was the first environmental asbestos case, so the trial judge, Mr Justice Holland, effectively tore down the factory walls and extended the duty of care to local residents, the neighbours of the factory. So that was a very, very important decision then, which had profound consequences. And I might add that the publicity of June's, around June's case was extraordinary. That was the first time, really, that mesothelioma was Sort of entered the national consciousness. It, it, you know, the the case was reported on all the major news programs, uh, all the newspapers, all the radio programs. You know, it was, there was a massive, uh, was massive coverage of the uh, decision, and that so did certainly raise awareness. And of course, following that, um, the the research fund was uh, was set up, and I believe you assisted in uh, in setting that fund up, Adrian. And um, you're a trustee uh, along with Kate. And um, obviously the positive work that the fund does in relation to research is, um, is so important, Kate. The June Hancock Fund has been a, a, a steady presence, shall we say. And we've, been, and we've, been funded, we've funded some important kind of um, first stage studies. Like one of the things that we did when the, um, when the first tranche of government funding was announced in 2016, the five million pounds uh, that, that went to Imperial to set up the National Asbestos Centre. One of the first things we did then was to adapt, was to adapt our research strategy to try and fund um, new ideas that would respond to the emerging findings from that, what we considered to be quite a large tranche of funding. Um, so we funded a couple of, of pilot studies, which have actually been quite fundamental in terms of securing larger grants. For example, Kevin Blythe's um, PREDICT MESO study uh, was predicated on data that was collected uh, during the MESO Origins study, which was funded by June Hancock. So they were able to collect the pilot data that underpinned that major application to Cancer Research UK. And then within our own portfolio, um, we've been fund uh, one of our major projects has been uh, Systems 2, which is um, a study looking at the management of symptoms in patients, notably pain, and it's and treating it with radiotherapy. Um, and we've also funded um, new discoveries, as it were, in, in Professor Dobbs in Greenwich, for example. Um, we've funded the research into uh, JBIR23, uh, and that's, uh, uh, <laughs> I hate to use acronyms because I know that most people don't understand them, but it is, it's just a, a reference number really for a compound that was discovered by some Japanese scientists, uh, but it was shown to have activity against mesothelioma cells in a test tube. Uh, and so um, Adrian's team have been essentially unpicking that molecule to find out which parts of it are the important factors in that uh, process uh, with the hope of developing you know new approaches to, to therapy so um, we we play our part um, and we do it you know without any um, paid staff 
Um, so everything that we do is done by volunteers. And um, yes, I'm very proud of the Joan Hancock Fund. I think we've done, you know, we've done a very good job, often in difficult circumstances. Of course, the research um, is so important for us in the UK, but obviously in the in the countries where asbestos is still being mined and used extensively, um, it's it's obviously very important. But obviously, we know that um, asbestos still exists in in many places in 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 the UK. The, the one thing people often say to me who don't know a great deal about asbestos is, well, surely it must be running out soon. Uh, and what they forget is you need to think back to the history of the production. You're talking thousands of thousands of people going to work every day producing asbestos products. Now, there is no sort of definitive list of asbestos products, but we think it's in the kind of three to 4,000 different types of asbestos products out in the built environment. Now, we were producing them for a long time. We were putting them into buildings for a long time, and it takes longer to get them out than it does to put them in. So what you've kind of noticed a little bit over my 30 years is more of the, the really dangerous asbestos products are starting to reduce, but the what you would consider less dangerous or lower risk products uh, are not particularly. So, I mean, on average, as a company, we survey thousands of buildings a year, but on average, we would find asbestos in 90 to 95% of all properties that we survey even today. So some of that's in poor condition, in fact, astonishingly poor condition. And some of it is it is relatively low risk and in a safe condition. But the, the thing that always strikes home to me is the fact that so few buildings have actually got an asbestos survey. Again, there's no definitive list for the number of buildings that have got a survey, but we think it's around about 15 to 20% possibly. Now, when you bear in mind that 100% of buildings legally should have some form of asbestos register or survey if they were built before the year 2000. That's a lot of buildings where we've no idea where the asbestos is. And there's tradesmen going in and out of those buildings doing work, they're not trained. So this isn't going away in a hurry. And if you need evidence of that, just look at the, the death rate from asbestos. It's still not going down. It's maybe flattening out a little bit, but that exposure is still there and it's still happening on a daily basis and it's 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 depressing it really is certainly i understand that the houses of parliament um contain a good deal of a great deal of asbestos and i understand there's a project um to remove it but um I, i'm aware that it's uh, it's been put back many times so far yeah absolutely right um like many old buildings it's um it's full of asbestos and um because there's an intrinsic cost in getting rid of that and particularly with that building it's a listed building it's full of asbestos um they've just never spent the money on it so um as you rightly point out it, it's in the process of being uh, i think it's been surveyed currently and then they hope over the next sort of five to 10 years to try and try and get rid of most of it. But that's a picture that's reflected across the UK in, in lots of buildings. And uh, also uh, in many schools and hospitals, unfortunately, the, the Parliamentary Asbestos Group uh, did a report a few years ago saying 75% of the country's schools still have asbestos in them. And uh, a subsequent report said that a, similar proportion of hospitals as well so that's uh, very worrying of itself and we've sadly 
represented people um, who are exposed in schools, both putting asbestos into schools, but also, you know, people have had exposure in classrooms, for example, teachers uh, and some pupils, and also nurses and doctors who've worked in old hospitals. I, I dealt with the first hospital exposure case almost 25 years ago now, and it's that's a, a, a real concern because, as Greg said, it's very much part of our infrastructure to this day. Yes, and in, of course you can't, um, if it's embedded in the walls, for example, or in, you know, in concrete blocks or or, out, or however the building's been constructed, it's really difficult for people, unless it is actually surveyed and, and marked, it's very difficult for people to know it's there. I mean, even raw asbestos, there are quite a few people who would not know what it looked like. And I mean, I can certainly remember talking to community groups where people didn't even know that uh, that asbestos is, is a mineral and that it's mined. They thought it was some kind of product that people made. So there's quite a lot of ignorance, I think, about um, or, or lack of understanding about uh, asbestos. And that doesn't help, I think, in terms of preventing disease from people who are exposed, perhaps accidentally or unwittingly to the you know to the dangers i think you're absolutely right kate uh, the, the problem that frustrates me or sorry the situation that frustrates me the most is if you picked 100 random schools in the uk you'd find most of them have got some form of asbestos survey so so why is it still a problem well it's the management of that asbestos that's the real key so a lot of people get an asbestos survey and think right job done but that goes in the drawer it stays on the computer and if you look who's most likely to damage asbestos in a, in a school or, or a similar type of building or hospital, it's generally the maintenance people, people coming to do work in the building, in a school, it could be the kids. So you have to manage that because that's where the exposure is happening and that's where it's falling down because my staff go into schools all the time to do surveys and almost never shown the asbestos survey. Now, is that because they know we're a surveyor? No, it's not. It's because the people, the gatekeepers are not trained. They're not aware. Is it their fault? No, it's not their fault. It's the duty holders fault. And that is the people who, you know, it could be the head. It could be the, whoever's in charge of the, the, the sort of the parent teachers committee, the, uh, the governors. But it's just not happening quickly enough or strongly enough. And, th and that's the real problem. It's the ongoing management of asbestos that's within buildings. So prevention and awareness is um, is what we should really be focusing on. Yeah, absolutely right, Rosemary. And, th and that's where kind of my passion comes in, really, is we've got to get it out. It, again, this frustrates me. I will set up an asbestos awareness um, session here in my offices. And the average age of most people coming in there, probably 40s, 50s, 60s, is too late. We've got to get them younger. It's got to be either coming through school or coming through college or apprenticeships. It's as early as we can. We don't have to ram it down the throat for an hour, but we've got to get it into the mindset and then keep getting it in there bit by bit. So when that individual joins a company or becomes a plumber, he sees something and he stops and goes, that's not right. And we need to get that checked out. And, and, and it's not difficult. It just needs everyone rowing in the same direction. Uh, to, to, to sort of make a difference. 
Yeah, I think in mesothelioma is a really good example of the old adage that prevention is better than cure because there is no cure for mesothelioma. So the only way to reduce cases is, is, to, is to prevent people being exposed. But then, of course, you have the problem with the latency period because mesothelioma, mesothelioma is, is a disease where symptoms don't emerge until many years after exposure. And, and that is a difficulty, I think, in terms of ident you know, preventing an, or early diagnosis as well. It's also an issue for that because people don't know they've got it. It's very difficult. But yeah, preventing exposure is key. Kate, can I just chip in there? Because um, mm. that stri strikes a chord with me. Uh, like you guys, I, I see all these facts wheeled out all the time. And they're all devastating facts that, that sort of make the case. But there's one that kind of um, I read recently which stood out for me, and that is that mesothelioma has the lowest survival rate of any cancer in the world, but it's the most preventable. And I think that that's astonishing, really, isn't it, if you think about it? We can actually prevent it, and that's what we have to try and do. That's very powerful, Greg. If we think about how much asbestos is out there in the wider world, outside of the UK, obviously that, that brings to mind how important it is that we um, work on banning mining of asbestos and the manufacturing of, uh, and use of asbestos worldwide. You're absolutely right. And, and one of the kind of... To get that across to people is sometimes difficult because obviously you're born in the UK, you live in the UK, you work in the UK and you don't really see the rest of the world or what goes on. So we're a little bit closed. And in a lot of ways, although we've got the highest rates of mesothelioma, we have some of the best regulations. They're not always applied as well as they should be, but, but things are good here to a certain extent when you compare us to other countries. And you get people like the Russians, uh, the Chinese to a certain extent, uh, who still mine asbestos and what I use it, it, it is this they say we still we only mine chrysotile white asbestos and that is low risk and it dissolves in your lungs so this dissolves in your lungs notion is utter rubbish right and the way I try to explain that way is 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 if you take a typical asbestos roof sheet it's made of cement um, and white asbestos generally okay and it's tightly bonded in there if you put that roof sheet in the centre of Manchester for 100 years and leave it, what you'll notice is, is the acid rain over time starts to dissolve the cement and it washes away and you get lichen and moss on it. But the asbestos doesn't touch it at all because asbestos is pretty resilient against any form of chemical attack. And that's why the Americans still import it because they use it for filters in the chloralkaline industry. But if you get asbestos fibers, white ones, chrysotile in your lungs, how can your lungs dissolve them and get rid of it? It's utter rubbish. So it, it's the reason they're saying this is trying to defend their position of mining asbestos. And ultimately, it's about what it's always about, which is profit. Certainly growing up, I remember when asbestos was found uh, at school that uh, we were reassured, parents reassured that oh, it's white asbestos, it's fine. And there was, there's been that sort of myth, urban myth, if you like, that white asbestos is less harmful. And of course it isn't, but uh, somehow, I suppose if you ask people that they know a bit about asbestos, they, they might say, oh, well, white asbestos may not be so so dangerous, but that that is completely wrong, of course, isn't it? 
I often get asked by people, you know, what kind of asbestos is it? Is is it is it the dangerous stuff or is it white? And I just, you know, please, it's it's all dangerous. That's the only way to look at it. It's the architecture of it, isn't it? That's dangerous. I mean, no matter what colour, the um, the mineral breaks down into tiny, smaller and smaller and smaller fibres, essentially, and they and they migrate through the lung tissue. They don't dissolve in it. So it's um, you're, you're quite right. It, that is a myth, but it's the nature of the substance that's the danger. And that's what causes the inflammatory response that leads to all the problems that ensue when people get exposed. And then the risks, depending on their particular genetic characteristics of them developing a, a, a tumour. Yeah, absolutely. And if you um, if a, a general sort of labourer tradesman looks at um a product with a fibre sticking out, particularly maybe an asbestos product, product, he sees one fibre and thinks that is one fibre. But as you rightly point out, it isn't. It's actually a bundle of thousands and thousands of fibres. And it breaks down so fine that the smaller ones that you breathe in are a micron in width, and that is a thousandth of a millimetre. So you can go into a plant room, a boiler room, anywhere, and just by virtue of you walking in there, the action of that will be, it will disturb enough air to pick up those fibres and you can breathe them in. May not be a lot of them, but again, we don't know how many fibres you need to breathe in before it becomes an issue. It's different for different people, but uh, you're absolutely right. It's the really tiny nature of those fibres. So awareness, we would say, is 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 key. If I give you an example how, how bad it can be. So uh, as, I, as I pointed out earlier, I try and give my time free and I will go anywhere. I'll go to the opening of an envelope if I can talk about asbestos and, and awareness. So I'll give you an example. In my um, local area um, in the northwest of England, I, I saw something going into my daughter's school and it involved a dangerous type of asbestos and they were going to fix it. And the people who were going to fix it didn't know it was asbestos and I had absolutely no idea, no training, no nothing. And the only reason I noticed it was as I was picking her up from school, I saw this event about to happen and I managed to stop them. Um, I then took over the running of the asbestos at, at my daughter's school, didn't charge them a penny. And I thought, this is going to be happening everywhere. So I offered to train all the governors of all the schools in my region, of which it was probably two, three thousand plus um, because it was their responsibility in these schools. I offered to train them all free. I said, you put them all together in a room anywhere. I will come to them, put them in groups of 10, 20. Just give me 20 minutes with them to explain how important it is that they look after the kids in the school with asbestos. They weren't interested. And that's the problem. It really is. I think there's a bit of fear, you know, Greg. I think that, that particularly in schools, I think people are frightened that they that they'll alarm, you know, parents or children, and that is not helpful in terms of preventing exposure. We see quite a lot of concern expressed about the cost of removal. I, I, what was particularly striking uh, over the last two or three years is seeing a huge rise in fly tipping. It's um, you know, it's a, a national scandal, really. But the, something like 900 tonnes of waste uh, just tipped uh, along country lanes or, or streets. Um, and I just along the road here in the, the village we we live in, uh, saw recently some asbestos just left by a public waste bin. Uh, I knew it was asbestos cement sheeting. 
I'm not as expert as you, Greg, but uh, could tell given the, the age of it, and it's just been left there. The way to stop fly tipping is is to encourage people to a deal with it properly. B, if they're gonna do, get rid of it themselves, bring it to the appropriate place. Let them know they should really be getting specialists to do it. Give them some form of assistance. I mean, the advice you get from different councils is is, is absolutely barking mad. In some of them, they will. Some of the councils will give you bags, and the bags are a sort of a standard size asbestos bag, probably about a meter long by half a meter wide. Um, and you get home and realise your garage roof sheet is twice the size of the bag. So you phone them up and say, what do I do? And what did they tell you to do? Break it in half. Yeah. I was just going to say, bag. cut it up. Cut yeah, it abso- up, probably. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and just to come back to what you said, Adrian, earlier about the cost of asbestos. It is expensive to remove and it, it, it can be prohibitive. But what is the cost of not removing it in some cases? Now, some asbestos you don't need to remove. It's safe. It's low risk. You can leave it, manage it. But there are some types of asbestos in, in some conditions and in some places, i.e. where they can be damaged, where, you know, maybe on a door panel or something where kids are kicking it and uh, it really needs removing. So the cost of not removing it potentially is greater than the cost of, of removing it. Absolutely, uh, Greg, uh, I totally agree with you. I mean, if, you're, if you have uh, someone who, for example, has an asbestos garage, because so many garages were constructed uh, in the post-war years, made of asbestos, what would you suggest to them they do if they're looking to take that down and uh, replace it? Uh, who's best to contact in those circumstances? Yes, good question, Adrian. And probably the question I'm asked the most, actually, is uh, every time I do a training course, somebody taps me on the shoulder at the end and says, uh, hey, Greg, I've got this garage, <laughs> uh, which always makes me smile. It's, um, I mean, any work with asbestos needs to be done by somebody who is licensed or, or specially trained. So uh, unless you are specially trained, you know, seek help from um those types of organizations there's plenty of them out there i mean you know if anybody is is listening to this and isn't sure i'm sure you can find me on the internet so i'll happily help out in some shape or form you can potentially do it yourself with the appropriate training um etc um and in terms of of taking it to your local authority tip most of them now it's fairly prohibitive Uh, i did help uh, because i'm trained i did help a, a neighbor of mine some years ago um take down his garage and i think he had 27 panels on it and when he contacted the local authority, they said, we'll take three a month. And he worked out that was going to take quite a long time to get rid of. So he, he paid a, uh, a proper waste contractor to, to take it away. I would ask them to be really careful of somebody who says for, for two or 300 quid, we'll get rid of it for you. Because that's the one that ends up in the field at the end of you, or the end of your garden generally um, and isn't treated properly. So even with domestic waste, it, it's still potentially expensive. But, um, you know... It's, uh, it, I would certainly encourage people to seek appropriate advice. Thank you to everyone for their contribution to what has been a fascinating discussion. Before I let you go, I'd like to focus on the future. Considering the work you do, what do you think are the positive signs to look to in the coming months and years? Can I come to you first, Kate? Well, I think from a research perspective, Rosemary, I think the the most important step forward that we've made for that we've made in recent times has been characterizing the genetic structure of mesothelioma because that opens the door to a lot of to a lot of progress with research. I mean, it 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 raises a lot of questions, 
and in particular how asbestos contributes to the changes that you see in in the genes that actually lead to the development of the mesothelioma. Now, when we understand that better, we, which we are starting to do now, and certainly with the PREDICT meso study, that will help to, to clarify a lot of questions that are still unanswered. I think once we understand that better, we'll be able to start to develop targeted therapies that will actually cut off certain pathways that enables mesothelioma to, to, to grow. And that will either mean that, you know, if we can also develop alongside that better tools to detect mesothelioma earlier, that'll mean that we'll be able to either intercept the disease and prevent it from developing or progressing, um, or even potentially to stabilise it. And whilst we may, you know, we may be still a long way off from cure, we may be able to control it much, much better in the future. And I think that's something, you know, a positive note for patients to, to, to feel that there will be, I think, in the next 10 years, significant steps forward in research. And Greg, on the same question, what needs to change to see a brighter future? I think the way I would look at the issue is this. Um, we've got to sort of, we've got to take it from both sides. So um, in terms of the cure, as Kate rightly pointed out, we need to try and get on top of that, accelerate the uh, the knowledge. So as people are diagnosed with this, we can help them live longer or maybe even one day survive. And then from the other side, we've got to stop them coming down the track. And, and I think that there's kind of two things that spring to mind. One is we've got to try and stop people mining asbestos and therefore making products. So the products start to disappear from from buildings or certainly new ones being put in. But for me, I think the big thing is um, I know when people are buying property they say what are the three most important things and it's location 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 it's exactly the same with asbestos except it's education 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 we've got to start getting this through to people and on the back of that maybe one of the things i would add is we've got to manage the asbestos we've got in place better finally adrian what does the future look like for our clients um i just echo what uh, kate and uh, greg have said uh um, I mean, there are uh, some great advances being made. There's a lot of clinical trials at the moment. Um, and I know at the moment, sadly, there's no cure, but uh, some of the uh, trials involving immunotherapy uh, drugs have shown some promising results. And some of our clients have uh, stable disease at the moment. Um, and we've been able to fund some of that treatment uh, through the legal claims where it's not available on the NHS. At the moment, uh, there's a particular combination of immunotherapy drugs that's going to be considered by NICE for standard treatment. Uh, uh, and some of our uh, clients have received that treatment privately, paid for through the legal claim. And uh, that is something to be hopeful for, really, that uh, we've, we've played a, a small part in that. But uh, this research uh, ongoing and that's vital. So a cure would be the, the best thing ever. But uh, I suppose realistically over the next 10 years, as Kate said, maybe we, we get to a point where uh, people are living with mesothelioma rather than dying from it. And that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely, Adrian. I'd like to thank Kate, Greg and Adrian. Um, for contributing to the podcast today. 
And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please do join us for our next episode.